Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. This week, we're going to be speaking with Vicki Ann Parker, and we cover a real wide variety of topics. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Vicky, so we're going to get into it. If you do, you might want to check out those in the back catalog as well. And I really appreciate the community that's developing around Seeds. It really, really helps if you're willing to share any of the episodes that you've listened to and enjoyed on social media. When I've had people do this, the feedback I've had is that their friends really appreciate being told about a new podcast. Now let's get into this conversation. So it's a pleasure to welcome Vicki Ann Parker, who's the founder of NZ Gifts of Love and Strength. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Stephen, for allowing us to be here and the great support you've given us um, with through your work, etc. to date. Yeah, no problem. Well, what I'd love to do is find out about what you're up to and what you're doing and the support that you're giving to people. But before we do that, I'd love to find out about, out about the back history of people and where they're from. So could we just start there and you could just tell us a bit about your background and where you're from? Okay, I have a wide and sort of varied background. I was born in Melbourne, Australia, but moved over when I was three months old. Okay. Um, and then my family, we grew up in between Rakaia and Dunsandal on the Brooks Brothers farm there. Um, so I started Dunsandal Primary and then we went to Rakaia. And I'll always remember mum coming collecting us one day, um, half an hour after we'd been at school, to say that the Rakaia River had actually flooded. And in order for us to get out, she had to pick us up from school because we lived on the other side. I've never seen a Rakaia flood like that before. Wow. And then we moved out to a place called Broomfield, which is at the back of Amberley. And there were only 24 students in that school and they were looking at closing it down. And now there's um, a zoning area and there's wait lists to get into that school. Is that right? So wow. from there we moved into town. It was a bit of a shock after coming from such a small school going into the big primary schools. Um, and that, that small primary school, like when you say 24 children, is that across the entire school? That, uh, there were two classrooms that went yep. up to form two. Okay. Um, and I guess a great thing that I'll always remember, we could do things like photography and you develop your own photos. You would do Chinese cooking. Because there wasn't a lot of students, you got to do those amazing things that a lot of kids can't do because of the high numbers in the classrooms. Wow. Um, so you really had that nice network and you'd go swimming in the weekend and you'd you'd find the principal in the school pool and you'd be having fun and it was just really nice a really nice community feel yeah yeah no that's cool so growing up in that environment sounds like it was quite a country focused environment was that because of your parents work or something or what was it it was my dad was a farm manager um and he actually managed what was the Guthrie farm and the Guthrie's had a lot to do with property um okay. here in Christchurch they're well-known investors and um the Mr. and Mrs. Guthrie passed away within minutes, um, a few years, passed away within a few minutes of each other a few years ago, which was really sad. So Dad was a farm manager, um, and yeah, we had a cementile, he was working on a cementile bull farm, we had a deer farm, um, and we also had a lot of sheep, and when we moved from Rakaia to Amberley, we put um, my pet sheep in the back of the truck with the sheepdog, and Skippity came all the way with us. Right, wow. So it was a really... Um I guess rural life, it sounds like, as a childhood. It was, and it was even like back then you could actually go and swim in the rivers. Like we had Stringers Bridge, which was, had a huge watering hole, and we all, all of us used to go and go and swim in there. But nowadays the river's a bit toxic in that area, mm-hmm. and due to health and safety, as children now, you don't get to experience a lot of that sort of stuff anymore. Right, interesting. So then you eventually moved into the city, you said? We moved into the city, and we lived in Burnside for a while and went to Kingalab Primary which is sadly now also been closed down mm-hmm. um, by the government um, and then we moved onto something which was really unusual, we moved onto a mushroom farm in Horatani Valley hmm. um, so back in the 80s we were the main competition to meadow mushrooms at that stage um, and it was a wonderful lifestyle up there with um, I guess it's a microclimate so you don't get the, uh, a lot of the frosts and that, a beautiful environment to live in. Yeah, so what 
What does a mushroom farm look like? I don't think I've been to a mushroom <laughs> farm, so I'm just curious. <laughs> okay, we lived on about two and a half acres. We uh-huh. had sheds um, where the mushrooms would be in boxes going upwards and where the compost would be put and they'd spawn and they would sprout. We'd made, we had our own co- compost machine, etc. Uh-huh. Um, back then, we didn't have air conditioning like we have now, so we were racing down to the ice rink in some of the hot summer days and putting ice inside the sheds from the ice rink um, to try and cool the sheds down for temperature. Right. Wow. That's interesting because I think, you know, just thinking mushrooms, and my mind is on mushrooms for some reason, but we don't often think where they come from. <laughs> no. But there's a whole, there must be a whole ecosystem of people who know how to grow their mushrooms. Very much so. And today we went out to the Ohoka Market, um, Lynette and I from NZ Gifts of Love and Strength, and we actually saw a woman that actually grows oyster mushrooms. And huh. I hadn't seen anything like that. I knew about shiitake mushrooms and button mushrooms and brown mushrooms and flat mushrooms and field mushrooms, but I'd never seen the oyster mushroom. So that was, it grows very differently from what we used to do, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, So what sort of things did you enjoy, like bring us up to sort of high school years? Were you, did you enjoy the outdoors or did you enjoy reading or did you enjoy, what What was What was it that you liked? I was a, a competitive tennis player. I entered oh. in a lot of competitions, etc. during mm. all the school holidays. I played, played a lot of competitive tennis. Yeah. Um, at school, I also played badminton and Believe it or not, as a female, I was behind the scenes in drama and I did lighting. So my girlfriend and I would go up and rig the lights, design a lighting plan and use a lighting board for all the shows at school, etc. And in my fifth form, it was a bit of a, I guess, a wee bit of a coup because we were given the drama award. And it was the first year that behind the scenes person actually was given the drama award because it normally went to an actress. I see. So they recognised the value of the... Yeah, we were shocked. It was a bit of a shock for everyone when we actually received it as well. Because, wow. I mean, we were up against people like Ali Harper, who was in our year at school, mm-hmm. who's gone on to be an amazing songstress and ex- actress as well. Yeah. So, and did you know what you wanted to study or do later in life at that point, you know, in high school years, or, or was it not clear? It, I had ideas of being an accountant. Oh, that yeah. was um, an idea that I did have, mm-hmm. or also teaching was another idea that I also um, sort of played with as well. I just love being with people. So. Right. Oh, okay. So that was always a part of your nature, was to be around people? and it Very much so. From the age of 14, I started part-time work at KFC, mm-hmm. um, and I was working with a lot of older people. Mm-hmm. And also, so you were spending time outside of work and inside work with, with them as well. So you grew up, and I guess where that's my passion from sales started to develop. Okay. Oh, interesting. And age 14 is quite young to be out sort of doing that work. My parents were financially struggling, so it was up to me to go and I was doing 20 hours during the week and 40 hours plus during school holidays because it would pay for my clothing, it would pay for my outings, it would help a wee bit with my school fees. Mm -hmm. So I was, I guess you could say, I was becoming self-sufficient in a roundabout way very early. Yeah. And is that something that you knew at the time maybe was different from other people that they, that, that you needed to do, you know, 20 hours a week, that's quite a lot. So yeah, I'm just curious. It it was because I went to a private girls school. Mm -hmm. A lot of my girlfriends had a lot of money. They had the labels on the back of their clothing. And if I wanted to look like that, I had to work hard to get that. Where a lot of them were actually giving it to them easily. They'd be given a car or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you feel that you have to keep up with the Joneses, I guess. There is Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure when you don't have money and you are at a private school. I believe things have changed a lot now, though. Yeah, sure. That's interesting. So you come sort of towards the end of high school, and did you know what you would do next, or what happened next? At the end of fifth form, due to the stock market um, crash, my parents lost everything on our our mushroom farm. So I was sent, I was lucky, I shouldn't say sent, I was lucky to be selected as a Rotary Exchange student. So at the end of my fifth form year, I headed off to upstate New York for my final year of schooling there. Right. Wow. And how do you get that? Do you apply for it? You have to apply and go through interview processes. Uh Um, Your teachers have to say how good you are at school and your sporting Mm -hmm. sporting ability and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you had the tennis. 
I had the tennis, the tennis was the strong one, and I sat probably middle stream in regards to my education. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction when you got the news that you're going overseas? It was actually quite funny because I had applied for Canada, uh-huh. and my best friend at the time, she had applied for the USA, mm-hmm. and both of us got selected to each other's countries. The opposite. <laughs> and we were only about three and a half hours away from each other, so we actually got to see each other in oh. each other's places we were residing. Yeah. So what was it like for you arriving as a, what were you, 15, 16? 15. Wow, that's pretty young. What was that like, going to a new country? and? It was exciting. Um, it was very hard for me to settle when I first arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, I was put into a very high religion area, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't have a lot of sports, um, right. they didn't do drama, and I found it really difficult. So probably the first month then I asked whether there was any likelihood that I could change to a school nearby where right. I could play sport, I could do my drama, and luckily I could move, so it made a huge difference. But simple thing of wearing a uniform every day at school and then turning up to high school and it's like, I've got to blow, dry, blow away my hair, I've got to put clothes on that is in a school uniform. You've mm. got to put your makeup on. And I mean, back in the 80s, it was big hair and everything. So yeah. it was a whole new ball game for me. Wow. So what sort of time is this? Sort of late 80s or mid 80s? I, was, I went overseas in 1988 and came home in 1989. So it was a full okay. year over there, Yeah. Um, which was good because I got to go through the prom and the cotillion where the right. girl asked the boy to a prom. Uh-huh. And also, obviously, um, a high school graduation, which was out of this world. Right. So what are some of the things that you think you learned in the U.S. context that maybe you wouldn't have learned in a New Zealand context? For me, I guess um, coming from living in New York, New Yorkers think very individually for themselves. You have to fight for yourself. Mm. I guess a lot of them are known. Some of them are known as it's quite an arrogant state. You've got to push yourself forward to get somewhere. Right. Um, so I learned that you need to speak up for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I also learned compassion um, and kindness. Being in the Rotary family, mm-hmm. you're always out there doing either telethons or you're doing something in the community. Okay. So there was a huge community focus. I mean, Dad was in Lions here, but I'd never been involved in community service per se before right. I left. So like, was that your first taste of that? really for you I mean very much so Um, and I loved it I thrived on it Mm. Um, meeting people we had a group which was called ANZA with um, Rotary students which was um, Australia New Zealand and South Africa that would get together all the time okay and it was a a very interesting time at that stage because from South Africa we had um, three white students and one coloured. Okay. And while they were there, they knew that they could hang out, have great times. But when they boarded that plane and headed back to South Africa, mm. that friendship was highly likely to dissipate. Right. But I'm pleased to say now they all still keep in contact. Right. Due to internet and things like that, yeah. which we didn't have back then. So yeah. it was letter writing or phone calls. Um, yeah. Computers had only just come out. And it was one of the programs that I, one of the um, subjects I took was actually computer programming. I didn't even know about computers before I left. Yeah. So it was a whole new ball game for yeah. me. This is the funny thing, I think, that somebody probably 50 years from now is going to listen to this podcast because it's out there now once it's recorded. And they're going to go, wow, imagine the time before computers when people wrote letters on paper and you mailed it and it arrived two weeks later and then you wrote back and it arrived two weeks later. So there's a month between sort of the connection, you know? I know, it's that racing to the letterbox. What have I got? Oh, has mum sent me something or has my brother sent me something to get you through because the phone calls were astronomical. I think my parents spent close to two grand just on phone calls back and forward. So it was hard because... um, I fell sick while I was over there for a period of time. My great nana passed away, and right. it wasn't the simple fact of hopping on a plane and going home for the funeral and going back. Yeah. You had to deal with that grief, and that's what I found hard was we grieve in New Zealand a lot differently from Americans mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Some are affected very heavily, but with the family I was, it was pick yourself up and move on. Right. Death has happened, and that was different for me. Yeah, wow. So you learned quite a lot there, it sounds like. I did. Um, I was very fortunate because we paid um, $500 back then and during the summer school holidays we were put on a bus, all this exchange students 
from New York over to LA and did a loop back to New York. So we were very fortunate. We saw most national parks, we saw mm. most theme parks, um, etc., and, and places of interest. And all we had to pay for was our food. So it would be the seven ninety nine buffet you'd pull in, or the bus would pull into McDonald's or whatever. Mm. But I'd never be able to see what I saw now mm. um, and see all those states, all those places. I mean, my heart goes out because I went up the World Trade Centre and that sits very fondly in my mind with 9-11, what happened, because the company I was working for back here at the time actually had staff in 9-11. Mm. So it was a, a bit of a yeah, weird feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's quite an opportunity to go at that age to those places. Do you feel like that time in New York, um, I guess helped you to find who you were or you know your sense of identity very, or looking back you know how, very reflecting. much so um i came back um and i had a boyfriend at the time that i had when i left here but we mm-hmm. sort of broke up and we tried when i got back and he said you've grown so much as a person you're a completely different person mm-hmm. from what i knew i was quite quiet i guess in a lot of ways but when i came back i was fighting for different rights and things like that i went mm-hmm. to polytech and i became um the vice president of the students association mm-hmm. and during that time it was when student fees were <laughs> introduced okay. so there i was on a picket line fighting for student students rights and that and it was that wasn't me before I left. Right, you wouldn't have been out there no. holding up signs. So what year was that? Was that 92-ish or uh, around? It would have been 89, 90. Oh, okay, 89, 90, right, interesting. Yeah, well, that's a whole other conversation is the the changes of education and what you pay for, right? Well, it's even like comparing the American style of education to New Zealand's mm. education system. It's very, very different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So what did you know what you wanted to study when you came back? And what, what did you study? Before I left America, um, I was on track for a college scholarship with tennis. Oh, yeah. And I, it was the first time my school had actually got to state sectionals. And we, myself and my doubles partner was seated second. And unfortunately, all of a sudden, I lost coordination. I couldn't remember how to had a tennis ball, et cetera, and lost every game. And it would have been the first time we got to state championships. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was still cleaning on accounting at, at that stage and staying on in America to do the college. But when I came back, I was lost. I did I did business studies. Um, mm. I looked at doing secondary school teaching. I went and did one year of the two-year degree and realised it wasn't me. Um, I was lost and... Mm. I went, it was mainly sales I went into after that because I was a people person. I just love being with people. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And what, what, what had happened with the tennis? Like, what, what was going on there? Was that an early sign of it, other things? Or It was. Before I came home, um, I ended up being admitted into hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had a sore throat. I'd had fatigue. I'd had migraines. And then it looked like I had an appendicitis. Yeah. Um, so they admitted me to remove it urgently, mm-hmm. and it was actually gastritis. So I came home, um, and unfortunately, my health has just take, continued a steady decline. Um, right. Sadly, it's, mm. but and there's not much I can do about that. Right. Oh, okay. Well, let's. We we're happy. We can talk about that if you want to. But um, yeah, because I'm, I'm curious because you had mentioned when we were initially setting up the interview and things that you're involved in Lyme disease advocacy, right? That's um, great. Yeah. Well, whenever you want to, we can talk about that. Cause oh, I'm happy I, to I bring think, it up. Okay. Yeah. Well, because I'm curious. I'll be honest. I don't know much about it, and I would love to be educated. So, <laughs> um, And hopefully the listeners can learn from this as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Well, for me, for the past 30 years, I have had continual health issues. I've had everything from losing my teeth all of a sudden that were perfect, mm-hmm. um, cognitive issues, migraines, women's issues, mm-hmm. knee issues, and I never knew what was wrong. And three years ago, um, an old high school student from New York contacted me and said, I think you've got Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And I went, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I saw it and the light bulb went on. So sadly, I told my family that I thought I had Lyme disease and they admitted me into psychiatric care for being delusional. Hmm. So I got out. Um, I, I was an inpatient, sadly, which was very difficult mm-hmm. um, because I knew in my own mind I wasn't mentally ill. They put me on medication that made me psychotic. Instead of being an antipsychotic, it made me psychotic, sadly. 
But I saved up the money and I sent my bloods away to Germany, which came back chronic Lyme disease, Bartonella, Babesia and a whole host of other things, which finally confirmed what had been wrong with me for the past 30 years. But Lyme disease, everyone thinks it's just a tick that um, causes Lyme disease, but it's not just the Lyme disease, it's the co-infections. And they can be carried by anything like mosquitoes, sandflies, spiders. It is a global um, epidemic. Um, it's spread by migratory birds. Um, and, yeah, it, basically the migratory birds bring a, a mosquito or a tick or flea or whatever, comes and bites you, it takes, uh, bites the bird, it takes a wee bit of saliva and the bird may be carrying it. And then when it bites you, it's putting that infected saliva into you. Mm. Now, not every insect carries it, of course. It's hit and miss as to whether you can get it. And if you get re-bitten, you can be reinfected. Mm. But, I mean, I got hugely bitten during the earthquakes in my red zone area where I lived. A whole host of us did. And we got this rash, and no one knew what it was. Mm. I now believe possibly some of us had were bitten with possibly a lime-carrying insect. Um, I lost... 70 kgs within three months. I was in and out of hospital with mm. respiratory illness, etc. Mm. So I run the support group here and globally. Um, May is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. Um, but yeah, it's there is no treatment in New Zealand. Mm. There are no doctors trained in it. Um, those who can afford it or can fundraise enough um, tend to head to Germany or Cyprus or the States for treatment um, because there is nothing here for us, sadly. Right. So... Um what would have been the cause of it? Would it have been in New York that something bit you that yes. caused it? Or I've gone through my diary from my year in, when I was living in New York and mm. it talks about all these little insects that I'd never seen before that had been biting me. And then I had been documenting, sorry, documenting my migraines, um, my cognitive ability. I couldn't recall words. Um, I couldn't do arithmetic anymore in my brain. Mm-hmm. All these things that I've gone back and gone, that's a sign, that's a sign. And that's a sign. Right. A lot of people are diagnosed with things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, autoimmune, um, MS, and those sorts of things. But it may possibly be Lyme disease. It's right. very heavily misdiagnosed. Yeah. But people, unless they know about it, won't send their bloods away. And to get an accurate blood test result out of New Zealand, you need to either send it to Germany or the USA to get accurate results. Right. Is that because it's not so common in New Zealand? And the same with Australia. Mine originally was sent to Australia, but they only tested me on four strains. And two of them were European, and I've never been to Europe. (laughs) So they came back negative, and they were free tests. So I upped the ante and sent it to the top, um, one of the top tick. Born, um, blood labs in the world, almond labs, hmm. um, and yeah, I That's got the what answers. Came back. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I just googled it just because I'm interested. As we're talking, this is the beauty of technology, right? <laughs> so it's interesting because they, they, well, this particular website says Lyme disease is rare, if not non-existent, in New Zealand. It's caused when ticks transport the bacterium. Is it Borrelia burgdorferi from animals to humans by biting? Exactly. It's they serious don't, and should be treated by a doctor. They don't, t- um, they very rarely talk about the co-infections, like with the mosquitoes and the other biting insects that carry it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, unless you know someone yeah. and you've got symptoms, you don't know where to go to look for the information. Right. And sometimes it's easier being misdiagnosed with the fibromyalgia and things like that because you'll get the treatment and you'll get the help here in New Zealand. Yeah, right. So... Do you, so looking back, I guess, do you think that was what was impacting your tennis playing ability? And, and I can't even hit a t- tennis ball nowadays. Yeah. I came back and for a while, you can go into remission and out of remission. Uh-huh. And for a while, I was out of remission and I played good senior level tennis. And then all of a sudden, I can't even hit a ball now. Right. So, yeah, it's affected me greatly. Yeah. I missed my sport. I loved my sport. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think we could do to raise awareness about this? We have tried writing to the government and we get told um, we don't have the t- the lime-carrying ticks in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, seek mental health <laughs> advice, um, which isn't what we need. I mean, we, there's a ho- there's probably about seven of us who are very active throughout New Zealand that mm-hmm. have all come together and more like, well, how can we get pressure? We need um, doctors trained in this because if they go overseas, um, they'll see it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of speaking to people about it. Um, we will be up in our ante in May because it's Worldwide um, Lyme Disease Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. 
and we're going to be pushing and trying to get more profile on it. But even the media won't run stories on it, which is right. really frustrating. Yeah. So how many people do you think there are in New Zealand who would be affected? It's what? hard to say because yeah. the government has also said that you can only get it if you travel internationally and, and get bitten overseas. But we've got people who have lived on farms, who have been bitten by sandflies, and even going hunting because deer in the wild sometimes carry it as well. Hmm. And they've been bitten, so they've never actually left New Zealand. But unfortunately, we just it's a non-notifiable disease. Right. So, yeah, unless we keep on pushing and we have more doctors coming in from like the UK, USA, Canada, etc., that treat Lyme disease, it's going to be, yeah, it's a hard road ahead for us. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's had a big impact over the last 30 years then. Yeah, I've it, lost my career. I mean, I used to be in finance. I used to be a mortgage broker uh-huh. and successful at that. And then I was in finance with insurance. But I started transposing figures and not aware. You don't actually see it. Mm. Um, so I was a danger. Mm. I, ha- I had to leave my job. I was so sick with my migraines, etc. as well. Yeah, yeah. And is there ways that it can be treated or what, what do you do? There's very various schools of thoughts in different ways. Um, like Justin Bieber has just come out with Lyme disease at the moment. Right. And he's got a hyperbaric unit at home that he's treating himself with and he's also doing um, natural medicine where other people decide to go the antibiotic route there's lots of different ways and it's up to you as a person to choose which way you go mm, okay that's interesting yeah it's a you, can do a co- you can do a combination of both too right yeah well if Justin Bieber has it maybe it will raise the profile <laughs> <laughs> well you've got Justin Bieber you've got Avril Lavigne you've got um, Alec Baldwin um, George Bush had it. Um, right. Shania Twain, who's been travelling here, that's how she lost her voice. Singing for many years, it affected her vol- vocal cords. Hmm. So she hmm. goes to Switzerland quite regularly for treatment. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's a topic that I did not know much about, so thank you for telling me. <laughs> That's all right. It's yeah. actually prevalent in Canada too, especially coming through Ontario at the moment. Um, the numbers are escalating in through there. I don't know whether it's because it's a lake region um, that that may have some impact. There's a lot more sort of forests and lakes and, and mm-hmm. that and free deer that wander, I guess, through those sorts of areas that could be carrying the ticks as well. Right. So I guess there's certain areas that are known for having it. It was first discovered in Connecticut, um, and that's where the name um, Bidufri comes from. Willie Bidufri was the person um, who actually discovered it. Hmm. Well, there you go. I've, <laughs> I've learned something new. <laughs> so coming back to your life and sort of what happened next, um, was that the area that you got into, was sort of finance accounting type of things? or? I did. I came back and I worked in the telecommunications industry for a while mm-hmm. um, and also um, as, as a telemarketer for a um, home security company and I helped set up a branch in Dunedin mm-hmm. um, as a sales coach as well because I was doing so well with my sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I left telecommunications, um, I went into mortgage broking and, yeah, it was – I thought I'd found my element. There was nothing more rewarding to me than going into – say, a low socioeconomic area and, and say, hey, guys, your house is confirmed, well done, you've done it. Yeah. And sometimes it may have been a, about trying to find a way of getting that circle to fit in the square with the various banks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I learned very quickly on that you need to mirror people, and I think that was possibly why I became so successful. So if I was going into a poorer household, I wasn't turning up in my flash business So using the language that most banks do mm-hmm. I'd talk at a level that they understood and if I was going to a corporate client obviously I'd have the business suit on talking about I don't know government or whatever else yep. it's a matter of mirroring your client and mm. making them feel that they count and that you weren't overpowering them at you're mm. at their level but it's yeah the money side of it was not so important to me it was the smiles and the happiness that you saw on the faces of the people saying you've got your first home or there's a case to your investment property or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So just talk us through, because I'd love to talk about NZ Gifts of Love and Strength. Um, what was the origin for that? Or what was happening in your life around the time that you thought that this was a good idea? And also we need to explain what it is. I know quite a <coughs> lot, but the listeners won't. So could you just ex- guide us through sort of 
how that originated because I'd love to know more about it. Sure. In 2011, I was lived in a red zone. I was mm-hmm. highly affected by the earthquakes. I'd mm-hmm. lost friends in CTV, mm-hmm. and I threw myself into volunteering in Avondale, which unfortunately did not get a lot of media coverage, even though we were a red zone. Mm-hmm. We were um, coming in with the baking army with Chris and Song, who set that up, and we were delivering food, etc., to the vulnerable. Um, mm. Every morning I'd go outside and I'd give a piece of cake to the kids who were heading off to school because I knew it was highly likely an aftershock and they'd have to be out of the classroom. So having a piece of comfort food would help. So also during that time, we were getting so much delivered to us. Um, one thing that sits in my mind and still brings tears to my eyes is a black, red and black scarf and someone knitted me from up north. I don't know who it was. Mm. But it was just like the media stories started to die down and then all of a sudden you'd get this little package and you'd feel amazing. Mm. And I guess... So you had personal experience of receiving something from and, and somebody else who exactly. showed some, that they cared. And giving stuff out to others who were hurting as well. Mm. Um, I think probably the biggest act of humanity I saw during the earthquakes, and it still reduces me to tears, was um, the Pike River fire crew turning up on my street to mandatory take down our um, chimneys. And the fire chief and his staff had lost people in the mine. And there they were. They had picked up their tools, left their families to come and save us. And to me, that was one of the biggest acts of humanity for me during that time. Mm. So from going on from there, um, I got red zoned out. My marriage fell over. I I had nothing. I had to start again. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to find a way of paying it forward. So about three years ago, I tried to set up Christchurch um, Acts of Kindness, um, Christchurch City of Heart Acts of Kindness, which was helping families eight, seven or eight years after the earthquakes that were still fighting, mm-hmm. but we couldn't get the traction. Um, so when the mosque attacks happened, to me that was not too similar from the earthquakes in a roundabout ways, although the earthquakes were man-made and this was human, a human catastrophe caused by another individual, People needed help, and they needed it in a hurry. So the lovely Sarah Ayanaru had started collecting at Theo's Fisheries. So I tuned up and I said, OK, here's what I've managed to obtain. Do you want me to help? And that's when it just exploded. I put a, I set up a Facebook page, and at the height of it, we had 55 home chefs cooking in the community. We used um, City Harvest. We'd go and pick up the food that mm-hmm. they were collecting. We'd give it to our home chefs and say, go and make something that's halal that the Muslim community can eat. So at the height of it, we were delivering 100 meals to the hub at Hagley Oval that were going to the hospital. We were delivering them out into the community to accommodation providers. And then we were getting wads and wads of donations of all sorts of things coming in from around New Zealand. It just exploded mm. in front of our face. So we were taking care packages out to the families of groceries, toiletries, um, books, toys, you name it, out to the families to try and help them get through some of those dark days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of the highlights was we had a lot of the Muslim women coming in and volunteering. They were delivering the meals. They were wanting to help. They were wanting to be part of it, which was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were. And it sounds like you acted quite quickly then after the shootings, like that, because that was the the time when people were really focused on it and maybe giving things. So, how did that happen so quickly afterwards that it was set up and began? Basically, I just saw this was a chance to relaunch it. Mm. I spoke to another person I was collecting stuff off, and we thought, okay, let's just go for it. So I had a woman up in Auckland called Angela Kittle, and she was just amazing. She had all these contacts in Christchurch. She'd say, okay, I found you a warehouse to go and be based in. Mm. This business is going to help with this. That business is going to help with that. And next minute, she had our main freight on board. So we were getting donations coming in from all around New Zealand. that drop it main freight, and main freight would drop it at us. It was just amazing hmm. wow that's cool so what has it developed into because i i've i've no like i said i i kind of know quite a bit more than people realize but the people listening don't so if you could explain what you're up to and what the purpose is 
Uh, probably about four months after the attacks, the Muslim community came to us and said, look, we really want to be self-sufficient. We want our mana back. Can you step back from what you're doing? Mm-hmm. So we took that on board. We still help the odd Muslim family that comes to us, mm-hmm. but we've actually grown and we help victims of severe trauma. Um, we've helped several families with house fires. We've helped a couple of families with hit and run. Um, we delivered this week to the poor train driver who had that fatal accident out near Rangura. So it's a wide range of people we look for. Um, we've also got a counsellor who refers some of her really bad client cases that she that are new that come through the door. Mm-hmm. And we also have a non-paid contract with Red Cross. So when the new refugees come into Christchurch, they get a welcome pack and we've got kids um, at our after school program where we're based out at New Brighton at the old school they do welcome to Christchurch cards they do artwork we collaborate with Good Bitches Baking so everyone gets some nice um, home baking that the wonderful Good Bitches team provide us Mm -hmm. with and it's yeah it's just grown into that it's about those who are struggling getting some love we hate saying it, but we are not a food bank um, just because you're short on money. But we're not cruel in that way. We will handshake you over to where the community meals are, where the food pantries are that can help you, um, or MSD or places like that, or something else, budgetary advice. Mm-hmm. We try to collaborate as much as possible, but also help. We're not there to say, go away, we're just not helping you. That's not us. Mm. So the typical scenario where it would be applicable would be some traumatic event has happened for a family family or an individual like a house fire or whatever it is and you would come in and say we support you we're here for you you're part of our community and here's a gift to, exactly. to help exactly. you we focus a lot on PTSD and mm-hmm. unfortunately PTSD is not spoken about enough we talk about depression we talk about suicide and believe it or not, the depression and suicide are actually part of PTSD, sadly, as well. Mm. So we know that, well, I do personally, I have a huge, horrific PTSD background from abuse, verbal, sexual, um, mm. etc. So I know that some days I can't get out of bed. I can't figure out what to put on a grocery list, let alone go and buy it. Right. So by giving these people even a magazine in the care package, because you can't focus on reading a book, but flicking through a magazine, looking at some pictures, and that means means a lot to people. Mm. So we're also a bit a bit different. If we get given grocery vouchers, for example, we don't give them to the families. We will go and go into pack and save for five dollar a week. We can get four or five items where they might just quickly rip out to the shops and buy that one item. So to utilise the money better, we buy what we have to. Effectively using it, isn't it? And it's not that we don't want to give people vouchers. Like, we've worked in with Lions, um, with the Muslim community. So we've had a brilliant day out at Methvin where there was jet boating and Mm -hmm. meals and things like that. And Lions also helped us take some of the families from the Muslim community to the show last year. So we do, where we feel um, we can give someone an outing or an experience, we will give them that voucher. Mm. But if it's food or warehouse, we will we'll ask you what you want. Right. Um, we feel that that's really important. Yeah. We've just had a lovely, lovely story of a young boy, um, Conrad. He made some metal signs that had Kiakaha on it, mm-hmm. and he was fundraising. He came in last week and gave us a large sum of money from his fundraising, and we're now paying for swimming lessons for a, a wee Muslim boy. We're organising to pay sports membership fees for another Muslim family because he was fundraising for the Muslim community. So that's how, rather than handing money, we specify that it actually goes to something that they physically need that they may not necessarily pay for. Mm. And the thing I like about your story is that it actually echoes the support that you received after the earthquakes, right? Like that somebody would knit you a red and black scarf and it would make an impact on you. Because I love to trace that sort of journey, like why is this important to you? But actually I can see where in your own personal story, having a gift of some kind after a traumatic event had a big impact. And therefore what you're doing, you know, it kind of makes logical sense that it there's a connection there, right? Exactly. It's like we've over the Christmas period, we've done the appeal for the Australian bushfire mm-hmm. with the firefighters, and we have specified that we are looking after the firefighters that fought and weren't able to save their town or a neighbouring town. Right. That's who we've narrowed it down to. 
we had a lot of negative feedback. Why aren't you paying into Red Cross? Why aren't you doing this? But we know when the media dies down, a lot of people go, oh, nobody's thinking of us. Mm. So sending over a little care package, and we've got beautiful handmade cards that kids have made for the firefighters, etc. It uplifts you. Mm. It may They may need the money, but physically receiving something that someone's thought of so mm. much for you to give... Yeah, means the world. So in the next four to six weeks, we'll be sending some of those packs out. Yeah, that's cool. So if people are interested in finding out more or want to support what you're doing, what's the best way for them? Because one thing we can do is in the show notes for the episode, we can put like web links and things. But Sadly, we need to find um, someone who can help us build a website. Okay, well, maybe that's the us. first request then. <laughs> exactly, and help us up, keep keep running it. At the moment, um, Lynette Hill is one of my board members, and it's her and I that are running around, I guess you could say, but like headless trucks. Yeah. We're turning up to every fundraise or every market, and we're selling stuff to fundraise and sausage sizzles, but part of that's also been out in the community. So I guess we are looking for donations in order to keep us going we have to pay 600 a month where we are just for to lease where we are Mm -hmm. Um, but we wouldn't change it being out at New Brighton um, in the old closed school um, is lovely Mm. it's an artist um, community out there you've also got an after school program Mm -hmm. where the kids are involved and that is something huge for us for the past couple of fundraisers we've actually had a primary school girl and a high school girl that are regularly in helping us wanting to do more so seeing the youth coming through again and wanting to volunteer that's huge Mm. and where do you get your energy to continue on this endeavor like what is it that you enjoy the most or what what fuels you I guess in some ways, um, because I couldn't have children, I have a dog. Mm. Um, she's a wee Jean poodle, mm-hmm. and she is my child. And being able to take her to work to see the smiles that she creates mm-hmm. means everything. And taking a package to someone and seeing the smiles or getting the feedback, that's that's enough. That's all the reward. None of us are paid for what we do at mm-hmm. NZ Gifts of Love and Strength. It's all volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is um, I also take time out, so every second week, Chloe goes out as a St. John's outreach therapy dog into rest homes and schools. Mm. And I just, because I don't have grandparents, I mean, it's lovely being with the elderly and just seeing the smiles that, mm. that Chloe can bring. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really cool. I get the warm fuzzies from just seeing smiles. Smiles and the feedback saying, oh, this, this made our day. That is what I thrive on. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So if people are interested, is um, how about like a Facebook page or something yes, like that? Yes, we, we have a Facebook page, NZ Gifts of Love and Strength. Mm-hmm. We also have an Instagram account as well. Um, but yeah, it's a matter of monitoring all those all the time and keeping up to date. Yeah. We try our hardest. <laughs> and sometimes we post too much or too little. It's hard to get a fine balance of what people like as well. That's true. And yeah. also, we love volunteers. Um, if anyone ever wants to come and volunteer, one of our goals later this year is actually to have the elderly out to New Brighton, to mm-hmm. our warehouse, to do crafts. Mm-hmm. Because I'm aware during the earthquake, a lot of elderly were displaced. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of loneliness still out there within the elderly. And we've been speaking to the rest homes about bringing them out for craft sessions or the crafts they used to do growing up. Because mm-hmm. a lot of them are dying away. Mm-hmm. And come out for a cuppa, a bit of a, bit of a chat, etc. And have them involved. Yeah. That's really cool. And I think the reason that we initially met, you came to a seminar that I gave you, didn't didn't you? Was that what the one, how to create a podcast? How to create it... a podcast. And you also introduced me to Abdi as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Abdi Ghani Ali. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And she was an earlier guest. Yeah. And it was interesting. From that, uh-huh. um, we went on and he said, oh, look, we're having this game of soccer against the police, the Muslim community. Yeah. So from that, we were out there and we had our... Our drinks and our cakes as a fundraiser out there and had a fantastic time. Oh, there you go. That's good. But people can refer to us if they know someone's suffering a severe traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Please get in touch. We will. Our board will look at it and we'll say, okay, yes, we can support this, or no, we can't. But here, this is where you can go to get that support. Right. Yeah. We are open. We need donations all the time of new items like um, groceries, toiletries. Even magazines, if someone's bought a magazine and they haven't read it, that brings so much joy to our clients. Mm. So we're happy for any of those things, but we don't take used items, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. We've been landed with a lot um, from our fire appeal. We didn't think, I don't think, enough at the start. Mm -hmm. It's a yes, we'll accept everything. So now we're trying to repurpose a lot of the clothes into crafts and different things that we can use that for. But it's easier, I think, if you stop and think, do you want something secondhand, 
if you're going through a traumatic event, I don't think you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Clothes are sometimes appreciated, um, but we don't like to offend people. And when we've said we've taken secondhand stuff before, people have given us used bottles of shampoo and things right. like that. You just can't do that. No, yeah, I can see where it wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, we're thankful that people try yeah, and they do it, help. It, people have a kind heart and they want to help. So clearly it's just the messaging about what's appropriate in that context, isn't oh, it? Oh, exactly. And yeah. I mean... Things that we tend to be short on are things for young boys. Right. Everyone gives lots of stuff for girls, but trying to find little items for boys and that, it's not easy mm. for the toys or the colouring books with dinosaurs or things like that. You don't yeah. get a lot that, of that in, but you get heaps of princess stuff and yeah, right. unicorns and, <laughs> and all of that. But the children's stuff, uh, and the same with men's items, mm. um, even men's magazines. Um, I'm talking about whether it's a sporting magazine or mountain biking those mm. sorts of things are all appreciated even if you've read a magazine and it looks new we'd be happy to take it yeah oh that's cool well yeah i'm just thinking back to when we met initially as well because i love what you're doing and and i'm just curious about the charitable status and whether that's helped you because that was one of the things i was kind of assisting with yes was becoming with, a charity with, so without your help Stephen, um and your pro bono work here we would not have got our charity status as quickly as we did and we are so thankful for the support and guidance you give us all the time mm. we were floundering out there and and just didn't know where to go and unless you've got charitable status it's very hard to apply to get funding yep. to carry on the work that you're doing yep. so yeah we are just so thankful for everything that you have done for us oh, and I hope no. that it's a beautiful pa partnership and collaboration ongoing yeah well I hope so too I mean any organization that's trying to do good in the world I try to help if I can some people who listen to this only hear me as the podcast host <laughs> you're so but, much more <laughs> actually um yeah my actual job is as a lawyer so <laughs> I'm often doing um yeah, working with charities and not-for-profits. So, I mean, we yeah. are trying to collaborate with as many because there's so many charities out there that should be working together, not competing against each other. Yeah. And sometimes if you've got one charity out there doing this work, you yep. may be doubling up in what you're actually giving a family and you could be helping another person. Yeah. So that's one of our big aims is more collaboration out there. Yeah. And we are looking to grow um, throughout New Zealand. That is our goal is to open up branches, I guess, a bit like a franchise mm -hmm. within various towns around New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, so we give them and say, this is what we do, this is what we collect, this is what the package looks like, right. these are your clients, and let them be self-sufficient for their own area. Mm. Well, it makes sense. And if people are interested, they can contact you, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. It, by all means do. I mean, the good thing about this, because of the way we're set up, we're ready to touch wood, we don't have to, but we're ready to respond to the to Christchurch or Canterbury's next disaster. Yeah. We've got the list of the chefs that have cooked for us in, in the past mm. that we can go out to. We've got the resources. Mm. So, yeah, I guess you could say we're set up ready, although we don't want another one, but it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Well, I've loved talking with you, just hearing your own personal story as well, and just, you know, the after the earthquakes that somebody giving you things really impacted you and then you've been able to transition that into I can help other people because the point of the podcast is actually to inspire people that maybe they could try doing something themselves whether that's coming to help you or a different organization that it's actually we are the fabric of society you know like we can't just abdicate responsibility and say well the government does that it's this sort of community initiative which really is the oil in the machine that that makes us all work together. So Very much so. And I think some people, would pro their mouths would po possibly drop open saying that I have Lyme disease mm. because I'm always positive out there. I know how to hide my pain. I, mm. I've become professional at it. I mean, I'm in the Burwood hy hydrotherapy pool at the hospital two times a week. Right. Um, and sometimes I need downtime. But when people see me, I'm just radiant. I'm happy because mm. I don't want to show the the true side of me being in pain and mm. having the chronic fatigue and that mm. it's um it affects me greatly with my mind and trying to write things etc and that's why i guess we had to come to you because mm. my ability to put sentences etc together mm. has, has diminished mm. i've lost that ability mm. yeah well make sure you take care of yourself <laughs> I do. as well as the outward 
face of doing what you're doing. I think that's... It's yeah. what gets me through. Otherwise, I would be sitting at home feeling sorry for myself, saying, I've Lyme disease, yeah. woe is me, woe is me, and I can't do that. That's yeah. not me. I know I can't hold down a full-time job because of my cognitive issues due mm. to the fatigue also and the pain. I can't... I'd, I'd have too many sick days. Mm. I know that. Mm. And if it wasn't the love and support that I have from Lynette, who's my board member, mm. who's also done so much charity work before she joined us um, it would be a hard road we work extremely well as a team and we've also got Abdul Jabbar who was from the Linwood Mosque um, on our board as well so he's our ethnic um, advisor so we're not sure on something with the families coming in from Red Cross the protocol um, from the country where they are Mm. simple things like faces on different things is a no no or a yes some like dogs some don't Mm. so it's all those sorts of things and the types of food that they can eat and can't eat are very different from a standard care package that you give to your fellow Kiwi. Right. It's not Muslim. Yeah. So it's a matter of keeping it's about that in line. Being sensitive and appropriate, isn't it? So a shout out to Abdul Jabbar and Lynette, who <laughs> sound like they really support you. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, it's a good team. It is, and it's hard because Abdul has been extremely sick, mm-hmm. um, yet he's still been a guiding light. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's an amazing man. Oh, that's cool. I love to hear stories like that. I love to hear about people doing good in the community. We still have some of the Muslim women um, come in. There's one Muslim woman, Sam. She has three children, four children, and she's always putting her hand up and coming in. Hmm. What what else can I do? What else can I do? It's like, you've got children, Sam. And it's like, no, this is me. I want to give. I want to give. And she's regularly putting a hand up to help yeah oh that's cool well what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put links to anything you send me so just send me the facebook link and the whatever it is the look email at us, um, the email for, maybe uh, yeah look out for us at various markets we're trying to beat as many markets um farmers markets etc mm-hmm. um and community days our fundraising barbecues apparently we've been told our sausages are legendary because we do something rather unique and people will have to turn up to find out what that is okay <laughs> um it's not just your standard sausage and a bread right um so yeah um we that's how we fundraise and we, we've got um packs of chocolates etc that are out in businesses and beauty products and that mm-hmm. so it's a matter of collaborating and selling product to generate an income to keep ourselves sufficient as well yeah that's great well, we'll put this out and we'll see what happens. Um, but thank you so much for coming in and chatting. It's a Friday evening and I know you've been busy and you have a fundraiser tomorrow. Um, I will not get this episode out by tomorrow. So I'm not going to, yeah, I won't um, advertise it, but you, you do have these sort of barbecues and things happening from time to time. So. And there may be businesses out there. I mean, if they want to help, maybe if they can't sponsor product, maybe they could donate, say, $50 a month that would go towards um, our ongoing operating costs, mm. something like that. And like we do with you, we'll give them a shout out, mm. whether it's on our letterhead or any of our marketing. We're happy to promote anyone who's happy to work with us. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's been great to hear your story and um, about your journey and, yeah, just seeing this the... Um, I guess for me, what stood out was the fact that you had been affected by someone giving you something and then it became a positive outworking of, well, I could set something up that gives things to people who are suffering trauma. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming and I really appreciate it. That's all right. My mum always thought that I'd be a nurse because she always thought I was a giver growing up. So I guess in a roundabout way, I'm not a nurse, but I am giving. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vicky. If you did, then make sure to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. Until next time. Mm-hmm.